So our scripture lesson for this morning is from James 2, beginning at verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man say, you, stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of the one to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of God for the people of God. So when I first wrote this sermon, this is adapted from one I gave last year. I gave this sermon on January 10th. And I'm sure you all remember that the week before January 10th was um, important. (laughs) There was a bit of a kerfuffle at the Capitol that week. If it weren't for the fact that I had planned this entire sermon series six months in advance, you could be um, forgiven for thinking that I had cherry-picked a verse to deal with that. Um, that particular week. As it stands, I can only credit the divine foreknowledge of God that this verse is relevant both a year ago and as we continue to reflect this year. It deals with a common question that we'll be asking today that I feel many of us have been asking for a year now. How did we get here? Um, I want to assure you of two things before I start. I don't preach on politics, and I'm not doing it today. Um, I preach about sin. I preach about grace. And we're going to get there today by way of politics, but I'm not preaching about politics itself. The second thing is I'm not calling out any particular party in this, because the only reason that we get to the place that we got to is if both sides are acting poorly, and in that process empowering one another to continue to act poorly. So I I wanted to start there because I know that people can get their hackles up the minute you start bringing up anything political. This is not the purpose of today. The question is, how did we get here? And I think it's a question for all of us because I know you guys and you're good people. 
I don't think any one of you would agree with the wanton destruction, death, and disrespect of a historic building that happened a year ago. Democrats and Republicans alike across the country on television and here in the church are grappling with the question of how did we get to the place where that is what happened? How did we get to the place where our disagreements became something of that magnitude? The answer to this is what James warns us about today, the corporate sin of partiality. It's a sin to which none of us are completely innocent. See, as I said before, you don't get here with one side being poorly behaved. What happens is that it's a long series of one side disrespecting the other, and so the other disrespects back, and it goes on and escalates and escalates and escalates. And honestly, it's been going on for as long as I've been alive, and I'm sure it's been going on longer than that. See, the problem started long before any modern president. As long as I've been aware of politics, it's been a game of who can say the worst thing about whom. It's often repackaged as partisanship, but it gets worse and worse. I have a friend, I'll be referencing him again later, um, He's a close friend of mine. He and I are on opposite sides of the aisle, and there have been so many conversations we've had where one of us has brought up something that has happened, something that's been said, some piece of poor behavior by one party or the other, and the response has almost always been, well, what, look, at what, look at what your side did. As if we excuse our own actions by looking at what someone else does. So you can replace rich and poor in this sermon, this illustration, in this scripture, with any divide between people, black and white, male or female, democrat or conservative, the effect and the trajectory are exactly the same. It starts with simple escalation. No longer are we people who love each other who happen to disagree over an issue. Now suddenly we've applied the terminology wrong and right to describe ourselves and someone else. And the minute we do that, well then those labels start to kind of take on a life of their own, don't they? They're the person who's wrong, we're the person who's right, and those, those labels can be kind of definitive. I mean, yeah, I only really meant it about this one issue, but I guess it's more true than that, isn't it? This leads to us otherizing people, us viewing people in terms of their labels, in terms of how we view them to be, in terms of stereotypes that we often know are not true of the people we're dealing with. we start labeling them, them, versus us. They're a Democrat, we're a Republican. Terms that used to only talk about political parties now have created this massive divide in this country where we have totally begun to disrespect and dehumanize one another based on such a simple term. This week I was on social media, no surprise. And I saw a post, and it said, what is one concept that you would delete from the history of the world if you had the choice? So I went into the comments, 
which if you're not part of the internet generation, please never do that. It's, it's a bad idea. I was dismayed, but not entirely surprised that the number one and two responses to that question were Democrats and Republicans. This is before death, before war, before cancer. This question was not talking politics, it was talking what is one thing in the history of the world that you could delete if you had the choice that would make everything better, and the top two responses were political. Because this is the world we've created for ourselves. We see this in the name calling from the last election. One side was called un-American while the other side was called deplorable. Tell me, would you use either of those terms to describe someone you care about? Of course you wouldn't. See, as I said, one of my closest friends is on the other side of the aisle from me. He is a member of the Republican Party in terms of like being an actual politician. He is, he's in the inner workings of the party in Texas. Needless to say, we disagree about a lot of things. But it's never gotten between us. We've been friends now for over a decade. We met in college. I stood at his wedding. How? Because we don't let disagreements become dehumanizing. Because we understand that even though he and I may disagree about lots of things politically, it doesn't make us lesser or greater than one another. It merely makes us different. Friends, you don't take weapons, break into Congress, scare octogenarian congressmen so bad that some of them needed medical attention if you value people despite your differences. That is why it's important for us as Christians to condemn that kind of behavior. I've seen a lot of Christians say that we shouldn't speak on things like that because it's political, but this isn't political, my friends. This is values. I don't care what party broke into the building. You don't do that if you value people. You don't do that if you value people despite differences. We're better than that. Or at least we should be. See, when James wrote this book, the greatest difference within the church was social economic class. Rich versus poor. He wasn't grabbing the low-hanging fruit. He wasn't grabbing the easy discussion to make his point. See, if I was doing that today, I'd probably talk about race, because enough time has passed since the civil rights era that at least most people will give lip service to the idea that people in the various races are all equal. And so I could give this entire sermon and talk about race and probably not rankle anybody. James could have done that too. He could have been talking about, you know, Sadducees versus Pharisees or some other internal Jewish conflict. He could have easily chosen low-hanging fruit of his day, but he didn't. He chose the single biggest example in his context. And the context he was talking to, the, the example he gave, was not isolated to a single church. 
This was the single biggest issue in the newborn church universal. Because see, the church was young. The church needed people, sure. But more than that, they needed funding. They had no formal structure. They needed to be able to exist as an organization. So in come two people. One of them is rich and one of them is poor. Sure, you'd love for both of them to stick around. But if you have to pour your attention onto one or the other, and you're a young organization that needs money to survive, what is the logical thing to do? You focus on the rich guy who can put some money in the offering plate instead of the poor guy who's probably going to ask you for something. Well-intentioned, to be sure. But not only did they not think about the feelings of the poor person, they didn't think about how it represented Christ. See, Christ didn't spend his ministry wooing the rich people. In fact, the richest person who ever came up to him said that I'd like to follow you, and his response was essentially go sell all that you own and then come back. Not because he had some axe to grind, but because he understood that this rich guy was never going to take the right steps. That this rich guy was too attached to his money to serve others with a genuine heart. Likewise, we are called to love despite those sorts of things, to be impartial, to show the same love and welcome to all despite divisions that might exist between us. James paints it not just as a moral issue, but as a soul issue. He positions that the showing of partiality reflects a lack of true faith in Christ. Dorothy Day said it, I believe, best. I love God as much as I love the person I love the least. It's quite an indictment, isn't it? I can think of several people who I don't love very well, and I would really hate for my love of God to be reflected in how I love those people, but she's probably right. It's another story. Um may or may not be true, but I don't think a story needs to be true to be valuable. A mega church was hiring a new pastor. And they set it up for weeks and weeks. They cleaned the building. They fixed a whole bunch of stuff. They redecorated things. They told everyone to come and to wear your best stuff and, you know, to, to put on the best welcome they could for this new pastor. And they bring in the old pastor who's retiring to introduce him. It's the morning of, everyone's coming in. And they've got their best clothes on, and they're greeting one another, and they're, they're all excited, and they're looking around, trying to figure out where this new pastor is. If you've ever been to a mega church, it's easy to lose people in the mix. So no one's really all that concerned when they don't see him. Maybe he's in the back getting ready. And this homeless man comes up. Dirty, broken down clothes, messy hair. He comes in and people kind of make a hole for him. They didn't really want to get close to him. He walks up and he gets a cup of coffee and he goes in. He starts to walk towards the front of the sanctuary and the usher grabs him and says, here, why don't we sit you over here in the backside? That way you can have better access to coffee if you want more. 
And so the service goes on. And the old pastor comes up and he says, as you all know, we're here to introduce our new pastor. And so I'd like to introduce him to you now, and maybe you're not surprised, but the homeless man stands up. And he walks to the front of the room. And he introduces himself as the new pastor. And he says, I came here dressed like this today because I wanted to see what kind of church I was walking into. And church, we have work to do. We love God as much as we love the person we love the least. Nashville, how much do you love God? See, there are areas of this church that you do really well. There are things that this church really excels in. There are ministries that you do on a yearly basis to show love for the community. We helped so many people this Christmas season. But a culture isn't set by our activities. A culture isn't set by a single person behind a pulpit. A culture is not set by a vote of the leadership team. A culture is set by thousands of tiny individual actions that happen in the life of the church and how we respond to them. Every time we do something and it's allowed, it adds to the culture. Every time we do something and it's spoken against, the culture is corrected in some way. We're making differences in the overall culture of the church. We cannot just do things as a congregation against partiality. We have to start privately. We have to start with our own hearts and our own lives. See, if someone came in who was dressed like that new pastor was dressed, maybe it was clear they hadn't showered in a couple of days. And you decide, I'm not going to go greet that person. I'm sure someone else will. And out of 30 of us, 29 of us decide that I'm not going to go greet that person, someone else will. Well, that gives a pretty clear picture of a culture doesn't it? Even though no one got together and decided corporately that we were going to be an unwelcoming culture, it reflected itself in the individual actions. That alone would be enough to show the guests that they weren't wanted. We only love God as much as we love the least, but I will go one further. Our ministry is only as effective as it is friendly to the person we least expect to see come through the door. Because that is what reflects our culture. Not how we treat those who look like us, sound like us, dress like us, believe like us, vote like us, but how we treat those who don't. How we treat those who come in who we aren't expecting. How is it with your soul today? Who is it that you show favoritism to? And who is it that suffers the inverse from you? See, when I first wrote this, I was a little um, overly optimistic. In this last section, I talked about how as we're beginning to prepare and plan for the end of the pandemic, my naivety was pretty cute. 
Here we are a year later with a new variant and no end in sight. But we can't keep letting the pandemic be a reason not to do ministry. So as we begin to prepare, as we begin to plan and prepare for the ways in which we are going to become the church of the pandemic era. We cannot neglect the internal work that so influences the life of our church. Who do you need to start loving better? And where can you start? Let's pray. Lord, we lift up to you our own individual hearts this day. We lift up to you all of the ways in which we know we fall short. I know there are people that I don't love well, Lord. I ask you to give me a soft heart toward them. Because it is hard to be good to those who it is hard to be good to. Help us corporately to individually seek our hearts on this. Because who we are as a whole is representative of who we are as individuals. So help us to work on how we love others. So that we might love you more. Help us to remember that quote by Dorothy Day as we walk into this next week, that we love you only as well as we love the person we love the least. Maybe that will help us to love you a little bit more. In your name we pray. Amen.